Welcome to Friendship with God. Today, Tom will continue in the book of Genesis, chapter 1. Here's Tom. All right, now, if you turn in there to Genesis 1-1, and uh, really where you're going to be on this verse, it's kind of an important verse, Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good, and God divided the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and the evening and the morning were the first day. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's the most contested verse in the Bible. Isn't that amazing? The first verse in the Bible is the most contested verse in the Bible. And we should, say to, we, we should ask ourselves the question, well, if, if that's the case, and it's under such attack, what do we need to do? What do we need to do? We say, well, we, 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 when, when you, you look at the Bible, and we'll, as, we'll, as we'll do in you, you understand that the first six days he created everything. The sixth day he created man. And you tally up everything. It's given to us an advantage in the New Testament. And you come out to uh, uh, January 8th, 2012. And it's about 6,000 years, give or take 100 or 200 years, something like that. But on the surface, it's in, th- in that realm, about 6,000 years. But science says, oh, no, 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 no. The earth cannot be that young. The earth is billions of years old. But the Bible says it's 6,000. No, the earth is billions of years old. So what do you do? What do you do as believers? You say, well, I know. I know what to do. I'll just brush up. Sorry. I'll just brush up a little bit on my thermodynamics. (laughs) Brush up on my thermodynamics. I I started a master's course in chemistry at San Diego State. And when I got to the, the class of thermodynamics, that was the end of my master's <laughs> brush up on thermodynamics. So the next time someone says to me, you know, God did not create, but a big bang happened and evolution is the explanation for all. You know what? Then I can say, oh, yeah? Well, what about the second law of thermodynamics? Take that. What do you think of that? Second law of thermodynamics. <laughs> or you say, you know, I just need to brush up a little bit on my molecular biology. <laughs> and so I can talk about the complexity of the tertiary, stru- the third, three, the three-dimensional structure of proteins. I'll just do that. I'll, do, I'll be able to say, yeah, well, look at the shape and the function of complex protein molecules. What do you think of that? Or you brush up a little bit on your radioactivity, your your understanding of radioactive theory, so that you can come along and say, well, what about the helium-argon comparison? Or Anyway, so it's very easy for for us as, as believers to become entangled with trying to support Genesis 1-1, what's all the scientific evidence? But the question is, how does God want us as believers to view Genesis 1-1? And the answer is given for us in Matthew 18-3, if we turn to that. And verily, I say unto you, except you be converted 
and become as little children, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. Wow, entering the kingdom of heaven? Is that what we're talking about? That's what he said. He said, you have to become like little children. Otherwise, you can't get in. God wants us to respond to Genesis 1-1 like a little child does. He says, okay, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Fine with me. That's fine. Okay. Because the great thing about children is that they just believe what you tell them. It's a wonderful thing. Uh, I mean, we, we have a, a school for young kids down at, in Takati, and we take them from really young, like 42 days old, uh, up until six years old. And the school is in the building where we do, we, do, we do science. We do research. We do manufacturing there. And so we get scientists who come through, and, and I get to sometimes give them a tour. You know? And I always love to take the scientists in, into the school, and, 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 I, and I tell them, I say, now I'm going to show you the crown jewels of the company. You know? <laughs> and I love to take them in there. And, and I love to say, you know what's great about these kids we're standing there, there's kids all around. I said, you know, of all the kids we've had in the school, we have yet to have one of those little kids come up to us and say, excuse me, can you reconcile that with the Darwinian theory of evolution? <laughs> it just hasn't happened. They just believe. That's the marvelous thing about kids. They just believe. That's what God says. That's what you should be. Just believe. Because what is it in Genesis 1-1? It's, it's like a test verse. It's like a simple question. Will you just simply believe? The first verse in the Bible is like a gate. It's like a gate verse. And the tragedy is that most people, when they come to this verse, they don't get through the gate. They don't get through the gate. I mean, here we are on the threshold of the Bible. The Bible, as the hymn rightly describes, he says it's a garden with flowers and everyone who goes in there can, can uh, take a, cl- a cluster. The, the Bible's a deep, deep mine with jewels rich and fair, hidden in its mighty depths for every searcher. It's an armory for us where we can repair and where we can find for life's battle every, every needful weapon there. That, that's what the Bible is. The Bible is described rightly that way. And people desperately need what the Bible has to offer. Most people, though, can't get through the gate. They can't get through Genesis 1-1. Because the gate, this gate of Genesis 1-1, is really very similar to the gate that the Lord spoke of in Matthew 7. Turn with me there. You're already in Matthew. So turn over to Matthew 7, verse 13 where the Lord speaks about the gate, the gate. He says, the gate, the straight gate. Notice in Matthew 7, 13 through 14. He says, enter ye in at the straight or the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And many there be which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate. And narrow is the way that, which leadeth to life, and few there be that find it. Oh, what's the narrow gate? What's the, what's, what's the straight gate? What's he talking to? Well, first of all, what does the narrow and the straight gate lead to? What does it lead to? Life. Life. It leads to life. That's what it says. It leads to life. 
That's what it's leading to, to life. You know, last Sunday we covered many, many titles in the Bible, and we talked about the Bible is the, is the word of God, and it's the word of truth, and, and a word of righteousness. But maybe the most important one when we're on the subject right now is what Paul said. He called the Bible in Philippians 2.16. He said, you know what I'm doing? To Timothy, he says, I'm holding forth the word of life. It's the word of life. And people desperately need life. Why? We need life. Everyone needs life. Life, life, life. The most, we're going to come to one of the most important verses in the Bible where it says the Spirit of God breathed into Adam, into his nostrils, the breath of life. God is a God of life. Life, life, life. That's God. We need life because we're all infected with the disease of death. That's the disease. We have a disease. We're like the people in Numbers, the Jewish people in Numbers 21, where, who, who they sinned against God, they sinned against Moses, and they were bitten by fiery serpents, by poisonous fiery serpents. And everyone's like that. And so we, we, we come, like, like the Jewish people came in, in Numbers 21.7, and they said, to, they said to Moses, we have sinned. We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against thee. Pray unto the Lord that he take away the serpents from us, the poisonous venom. For those people who came to Moses, the poisonous venom was already working in their body. They were not going to be bit. They were bit. They watched their friends, their relatives, people they knew fall over and die. Many people died during that time. And it was, they knew, it was only a matter of time before the venom killed them like it killed the people that they saw dying. And so realizing this, and realizing what had happened, and more importantly, realizing the cause for it, they come running to Moses, and they say, we sin, we sin, take this away, take this away. Now, that's, so, so the Bible, the Bible is the word of life, it's God's anti-venom. It's what will take away this death. So you see in Matthew 7, 13, how it starts out, there's a cry that comes out. It's, God, it's like God saying, saying, he says, come on in. He says, enter through the door. Come into the word of life. Come and find the life that God has in the Bible for you. Come on in, come through the door. He says, come in. He says, come, come, come. And, and God says, look, take my hand. I'll pull you through. I'll, 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 I'll bring you through this gate of Genesis 1.1. But see how Matthew 7.13, it sets it up there, the 14, it sets it up in a, by way of a contrast. You have this, and you have this. He says, on the one hand, we have a gate that is narrow. On the other hand, we have a gate that's wide. On the one hand, we have a way to the gate, which is narrow. On the other hand, over here, it says, we got a, a way that's wide. It's wide. On the one hand, we have a gate that's difficult to enter into. It's not easy. It's difficult. On the other hand, we got a gate that's easy to enter into. There's no problem. On the one hand, we have finding this gate. Very few, very few people find this gate over here. On the other hand, we have many people find this gate over here. On the one hand, we've got this gate's leading to life. And then, on the other hand, we have this gate leads to destruction. This gate leads to destruction. You know who said these words in Matthew 7? This is spoken, as you know, by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He said these words. And we only have to remember, in fact, let's keep your place here in Matthew. Turn over to John, John 1. We only have to remember 
that this is the same one who is, who, who, who is acting, well, we're going to see this here in Matthew, uh, we're over in John 1, where it says, in the beginning, boy, that sounds familiar, in the beginning, that's the way Genesis 1, 1, in the beginning, it says, was the word. How can in the beginning was? But that's because it's speaking about our limitation. It's not God's beginning. It's our beginning. So, in the be- so we have to accept this. This is, this is not easy. You can't, in the beginning was. It was already there. Well, then it's not the beginning. Well, we're not talking about. We're only talking about our beginning. If that hasn't confused you, just wait. We'll, we'll work harder on it. So he says, <clears throat> in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, or pointed toward God, and the Word actually was God. Now, if that doesn't confuse you, we'll work harder at it further. But he says, the word was God, and he goes on, the same was in the beginning with God. And he says, all, all, all things, everything, every single thing was made by the word, by this person called the word. It was made by him. And, and without him, just in case there was any doubt, there wasn't anything made that wasn't made by him. Further on, it goes on, it says, the word became flesh and dwelt or tented among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth, in verse 14. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. That's who we're talking about. Now just keep that in mind. Turn back to to Matthew 7. And realize that this in Matthew 7, what the Lord is doing here is is something wonderful. You know, uh, October, a couple years ago, in 2009, so uh, I got this award, the Whistleblower of the Year for 2009 by the Taxpayers Against Fraud. Which meant I had to go. Which meant I got a chance to go to the awards ceremony in, in D.C. and and uh, they tried to restrict me. They said, "Now you're not the keynote speaker." They explained to me. <laughs> they said, "That's uh, Senator Leahy. He's the senator of the year. You're just the you're, you're the whistleblower of the year. You have four minutes." And uh, so I said, "Okay, four minutes." So, and I was kind of the whole day we were in D.C. and I was walking around and kind of thinking and thinking and thinking what to say. And my wife was saying to me, what are you going to say? I said, I don't know. And so then she said, well, I'm going to the room and write your speech for you. So she went up there and she wrote the speech. She said, here it is. You know, and I looked at it and it's about two pages. It says, very nice to be in America where you have the opportunity to stop evil and all that. And okay, good, thanks. Put it in my pocket. And I kept with this, kept thinking about, what am I going to say, what am I going to say, what am I going to say? And then she got more and more nervous because she realized I wasn't going to use her speech that she spent the time writing. And so she said, now I want to explain something to you. She said, we, uh, she said, you know, we're sitting there at the head table and she said, but I have a key to the room and if you start to fall flat on your face, I'm not going to watch this. She said, I'm leaving. She said, <laughs> I said okay. So there was about, about 400 attorneys in there. And for this, uh, this annual meeting. And so the one attorney gets up and he says, hello, you know, my name is, uh, you know, so-and-so Goldberg and my partner is Le- Levy here, Levi and, you know, and, uh, you know, over here is Strauss and, you know, one person after the other starts getting up and it sounded like a, a roll from a synagogue. And so, um, so I got up and, uh, and they said, and I said, you know, I said, uh, I thought I was the only Jew here, but I come to find out I'm not. And so then I said to them, I said, uh, whistleblower of the year, I said, I want to tell you that in being the whistleblower of the year, I had a model, a person I copied, a hero. As a matter of fact, 
it was actually heroine, or heroess, whatever it is. And I said, uh, I said, she was my model. She was my inspiration for this. I said, why? Because there were certain elements that she had, which, first of all, she was disadvantaged. Her mother and her father were dead. And all she had was her uncle or cousin, whoever he was. But anyway, uh, she had him who raised her. And she was Jewish, and she got her, she, she found herself in a situation where she was the only Jew in a very hostile environment of, uh, of non-Jews. And she was kind of trying to blend in a little bit, and all of a sudden it came to a point where all the Jews were, all the Jews were going to be destroyed. Not just a local holocaust, for all intents and purposes, this was it. And the spotlight was on her, and the question is, would she be the whistleblower or not? And this was at great risk to her life. As a matter of fact, she said, um, if I perish, I perish. And her uncle actually told her, says, you got to do it. You have to be the whistleblower. You've got to do it because, he said, don't think you'll save your skin. God will bring up a deliverance from some other place, but don't think you'll be saved out of it. And so she took to heart the advice from her uncle, and she blew the whistle. Great risk to herself. And because she did, she took the chance, took the risk, then all the Jews were saved. Now, you know, it's kind of amazing. They didn't know who I was talking about. I, don't, do <laughs> I mean, I don't know. Do you know who I'm talking about? I think you know who I'm talking about, right? And so then I, said, and I, I saw that. I thought, they don't know who I'm talking about. So I said, and the, and the bad man was named was Haman. And they, oh, then they all kind of, oh, wonderful, wonderful. You know, how nice. You know, he stands up and tells a Jewish story. So then I said, but I want to tell you that there was even a greater whistleblower than Esther. And that greater whistleblower came from a far, far, far away place where he was also a fish out of water not with his own, and at great risk to himself, as a matter of fact, he was killed over it, at great risk to himself, he blew the whistle and said, not just the Jews, but all of mankind is heading toward a road of destruction. Same thing. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, uh, 23 minutes later, (laughs) and... And the lawyer, Goldberg, got up and said, well, I was thinking about trying to correct Tom, but what can I say? Anyway, but it's true. He is the ultimate whistleblower. And Matthew 7 is him blowing the whistle. Wow, that's a great illustration. Now, Tom, many people are turned away from the Bible because they just cannot believe that the first few chapters of Genesis are literally true. They say that the earth cannot be, as the Bible says, 6,000 years old and created in just six literal 24-hour days. You're a published scientist. How would you respond to that? Well, first of all, let me just comment that the word yom in the Bible is the word that's used to describe the amount of time that God took to create the earth, six literal periods of time, each period called a yom. You know, for me personally, it's very, it's very uh, close to my heart, it's close to home. When I was growing up, I remember very distinctly the days of Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, because on that day, 
we as a family would go to synagogue all day long and we would fast all day long. And when we fasted, we did not only not eat food for 24 hours, we drank no water for 24 hours. And I still, to this day, remember being in the synagogue and seeing the drinking fountain with a plastic bag taped around it as we weren't allowed to drink water. And so as a little kid, I remember when I was nine years old and as a little kid sitting there and not looking forward to the day, the Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, and thinking to myself, all I got to do is just get through 24 hours. And those 24 hours were really important. So for me personally, when someone came along and said, Anything to the extent that Yom was anything more than 24 hours was absolutely unacceptable. We couldn't go there. So for me, I understand very clearly in reading the Bible that when God said that he created everything in 24 hours, I just said, God, I wasn't there at the time. So if you said that you created everything in six little 24-hour periods, I think, you know what? I think I'll let God be God. But here's a verse which for me as a scientist settled it all. It has to do with our Jewish people. It came about in Genesis chapter 18 when God came to Abraham and to Sarah, and he made the prediction that here was a couple, like a hundred, about a hundred years old, and to this couple that had never had any children between them, he says to them, You're going to have a son. And They didn't believe it. As a matter of fact, they laughed. And when they were asked, did you laugh? They said, no, we didn't laugh. And God said, no, you laughed. And as a matter of fact, for all of eternity, I'm going to memorialize your laugh because the child, the son that's going to be born, Isaac, Yitzhak, he's going to be called laughter so that we'll never forget that you laughed when I told you that something impossible was going to happen. But then he said this statement to Abraham. He said, Abraham, Genesis 18, 14, is anything too hard for the Lord? That question for me settles it all. Scientist, no scientist, it settles it all. You know what? It's above my pay scale. If God says that he created the earth 6,000 years ago in six literal 24-hour days, who am I? What am I going to do? Argue with God? I think I'll just let God be God and let him just say what he did. I wasn't there. It's fine. I'm not going to challenge him. And so that just answers everything for me. And I just say, nothing's too hard for God. That's what he says he did. It's not too hard for God. He can do it. You know, this is such a fundamentally important point for me personally that as a part of our company, Scanabodies Laboratory, which is a science-based company, we produce first response pregnancy tests, we have 1,500 products, a clinical laboratory, therapies for cancer, for HIV, uh, many, many products. And as part of our science-based company, In Santee, California, we operate what's called the Creation Museum. The Creation Museum here in Santee has about 15,000 to 20,000 visitors. It's free of charge that come through every year. It's the largest creation museum on the West Coast. And there's three parts in the museum. There's the first part, which is about the history of the earth, 
dinosaurs, the six little creation days, great display on the Grand Canyon. Then there's a section there which is devoted to anatomy and physiology, just showing the wonders of God's creation. This is a museum that you would take hours to go through. And you know, as you go through this museum and you look at what God has done, your mouth just drops over, not because of the museum, but because of what God has done. And you say to yourself, there's nothing too hard for God. Let's let God be God. Thank you for joining us today. Tomorrow, Tom will continue in the book of Genesis. If you'd like to learn more about Tom Cantor or Israel Restoration Ministries, visit our websites at friendshipwithgod.org or israelrestoration.org. There you'll find more resources to help you with your friendship with God. Join us again tomorrow at the same time as we continue in Genesis. Genesis.